0: weekly signals every tuesday morning from eight to nine a.m. join me mike Casper, and nathan callahan for the best in reality-based radio that's weekly signals check out the website
1: at weeklysignals.com
2: the opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of kuci its management or the uc board of regents to find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on kuci log on to our website at kuci.org or check out the latest program guide
3: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection And she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90 minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this, radio show, and our great guest please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray.
0: Good evening, Lloyd. Well, we have a very special guest. He has been on our show twice before, and we think he is the privacy hero of California. He is a wonderful man, brilliant, and a great legislator, honest, ethical. I, I can't just say enough about the Senator Joe Simidian. Let me, for those of you who have not heard him before, I want to tell you he's great. You can also listen at KUCI.org slash to his previous interviews, and then you can also listen to this one as well. Senator Joe Simidian was elected to the California State Senate in November of 2004 to represent the 11th state Senate District, which includes portions of San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz Counties. His public service over the years includes stints as a state assembly member, member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors, mayor of Palo Alto, and president of the Palo Alto School Board. He's also served as an election observer and supervisor in El Salvador and Bosnia, and he participated in refugee relief and resettlement efforts in Albania and Kosovo. In the Senate, Joe Samidian chairs the Select Committee on Privacy, which is my favorite, and also the Environmental Quality Committee. In addition to those, he serves on many other committees in the Senate. Joe Samidian received his BA with academic honors from Colorado College. And he also holds a master's in international policies from Stanford University and a master's in city planning and a law degree from UC Berkeley. So he has great background in all of these wonderful issues. The Capitol Weekly identified Joe Midian as one of the half dozen most effective members of the legislature. And of course, in my opinion, he's the top member who is effective. The San Jose Magazine has repeatedly recognized him as one of the Power 100 of Silicon Valley. And in 2003, Joe Semidian was selected by Scientific American Magazine as one of the Scientific American 50 leaders in technology from around the world. Joe Simitian and his work has been quoted or noted in publications as diverse as Atlantic Monthly, Condé Nast Traveler, Mother Jones, People Magazine, and Scientific American. And his many media appearances range from CNN to the Dr. Phil Show. And he's been on our show a couple times before, and he is a great privacy hero. There's so much more I could tell you about the senator, but you're going to hear him for yourself. And you can also go and visit senatorsimidian.com or sen.ca.gov, and also learn more at KUCI.org slash Thank you, Senator Sumitian, for joining us again. You are terrific.
2: Mari, my great pleasure, and and thank you. I know who I want to do my eulogy now that I've listened to you. (laughs) You're more than a little kind, so thank you very much.
0: Oh, no, I think you're great. You walk on water. I know that. Well, you have been my privacy hero and a consumer protection hero for our state for a long time since you've been in the Assembly, and I want to thank you. But today, let's talk about some of your new legislation and also the groundbreaking laws that you did in privacy that you've introduced over the years, because I think it's a great overview for what's happening in our society now. First, why don't you tell me and my audience about how and why privacy became an important issue for you? You
2: know, it was was not anything I planned. One of the great things about my work is that I have the opportunity to pursue my my curiosity, my interests, and the interests of my constituents. When I came to the state legislature back in the year 2000, I did not have a background in privacy. But early on, I uh, I started to develop the interest coming from Silicon Valley. I was particularly uh, interested and engaged by the uh, early conversation about what were the privacy implications of doing so much business online. Started to pursue that issue a little bit. Discovered that, at least in the state assembly, there really wasn't a lot of work being done on privacy issues. And uh, asked the Speaker of the Assembly at that time if I could chair a select committee, a study committee, if you will, on privacy issues, and he said, go to it. Uh, and since my first forays, uh, literally almost the first few months I walked in the door, uh, the, I continue to be engaged by these issues. I continue to think they're important. And I hear that from my constituents who tell me that they care about these privacy issues. And um, it, it's interesting, here in the State Senate, when I first came to the Senate, I, I thought, well, there are a lot of good members of the Senate who were working on these issues, uh, and I did not uh, think that I would necessarily pursue them, but I got pulled in again on uh, some individual issues. And then a lot of the privacy warriors in the Senate, frankly, have moved on as a result of term limits, Murray. So people like former Senator Deborah Bowen and Jackie Speier and Liz Figueroa and Kevin Murray, who all worked in this area, you know, they've all gone uh, on uh, to other work as a result of term limits, and uh, that sort of left me uh, as one of the, the... the privacy folks who stays in the state senate. I've got another four years uh, in front of me now, and um, it, it just seems to me like uh, I've got a body of work that I, I should be building on, and hopefully I'll be able to do that over the next few years.
0: And you're going to have to be the Pied Piper to get some others to join you.
2: Well, it, you know, <laughs> these are these are issues that are that are. Um, I think, you know, I'm I'm fortunate. I've got a constituency that uh, that values privacy, understands the importance of the issue. Uh, Importance of the issue and and uh, supports me in this work. But I think uh, for some of my colleagues, particularly with uh, term limits in the state uh, assembly, where folks are there no more than six years and they have two-year terms, developing the knowledge and the expertise, which takes some time, uh, is is hard to do in a relatively short period of time. And so I think it's uh, it's going to be tougher and tougher in some ways to find members who want to uh, roll up their shirt sleeves and sort of become knowledgeable enough to feel like they can do good work. So it's a it's a challenge given the complexity of the issue. And I mean, you've been working on this for years and years and years. You know how broad uh, the field is and how much time and energy it takes to, to really feel like you understand the issues well enough to wade in and, and have an impact.
0: Right. A lot of the bills that you've introduced have been both privacy and consumer protection bills. So I think sometimes If people don't understand privacy, at least they'll understand consumer protection. And and right now in the environment that we're in, consumer protection is going to be more and more important. But I want to go back to when you were just a baby in the assembly (laughs) and you did just a groundbreaking bill when you introduced your first security breach notification law.
2: Well, it's interesting because that was not really what I set out to do. I I had (laughs) looked at that issue, uh, the issue of making sure that consumers got notice if their information had been compromised as a result of the security breach. I was really uh, setting out uh, that first term in office to deal with the issue of privacy policies and require them to be posted and complied with, and I ended up tossing the security breach item in uh, almost as an afterthought uh, just shortly before I introduced the legislation with the theory that it was at least a conversation worth having. And if I had to sort of give away something as the bill worked its way through the process, that uh, that was something that I might be able to to surrender. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it's good to work hard. and It's good to be smart, but sometimes it's also good to just get lucky. And uh, we had, as you may recall, back in uh, 2002, we had the security breach at the Teal Data Center, which housed information for... 265,000 state employees, and people didn't hear about it for a month and a half, close to two months, until they got a form letter. And among those 265,000 state employees were 120 members of the California state legislature, (laughs) 80 assembly members and 40 state senators. And then all of a sudden, uh, my colleagues understood in a very real and personal way what it was I had been talking about, because it was their information that had been compromised. Uh, They were the ones who were getting those form letters, uh, you know, a month and a half, two months after the fact. And when I said, you know, don't you think maybe we all should have known that sooner rather than later, Uh, (laughs) they got it. And uh, I was fortunate as well that uh, as I was a freshman assembly member, a senior senator named Steve Peace weighed in and said, absolutely, we've got to do something about this. So he and I ended up writing uh, essentially identical bills that were mirror images and uh, between the two of us uh, put that first security breach law in the books here in California and It's been the model, as you know, for more than 40 other states to adopt similar legislation now that protects consumers around the country.
0: Yes. And it really has made a difference. And I think that was such a brilliant bill to introduce, even though that wasn't your main interest at the time. You can see how that has made a tremendous difference. And then now this year you've introduced new legislation, SB20. And let's talk about that because that's kind of piggybacking on what's Mm -hmm. been happening with the security breach legislation.
2: Well, you know, I think um, now that we have experience, you know, we've got five, six years experience now here in California with the original security breach law. Uh, We've got the experience in other states around the country. Uh, I think it's important when you author legislation like this to come back and say, all right, how how are we doing? How's it working out? Uh, And, you know, there'll be times when you have to say, look, just not working or it's not working the way we thought. I think for the most part, uh, folks are inclined to agree that it's worked better than we had ever uh, had a reason to hope for it. Um, it has, uh, I think, encouraged folks to get more serious and robust about their privacy protection. Uh, it has meant that people now have some incentive to protect this information so that they don't have to provide notice with the attendant cost and loss of reputation. But I think one of the lessons we have learned over the last five or six years is that while a lot of people do a pretty good job of providing notice, uh, unfortunately, a significant number do not. And. We get reports back from consumers who say, I got something in the mail, but I got no idea what it really means. It's not written very clearly. It doesn't provide me with much in the way of information. So the bill you referenced that I introduced this year, and I've been working on it for a couple of years now, is Senate Bill 20, which is designed to say, look, let's have some core content. Let's have some standard information so that when you get that notice, we know for sure that it will have at least the basic information you need to protect yourself uh, from folks who have perhaps access to your personal information. And that's really the goal It's to make sure, as I say, that um, you have clear, specific information about what was taken, when was it taken, and then you're better able to use that information to protect yourself. And each of us will have different views about how much we want to do to protect ourselves. Right. But you and I ought to be able to make that judgment for ourselves, and we can't really make that judgment, take the right steps, whatever we may think they are, if we don't know what the circumstances were, with a little more clarity and specificity than some folks are providing,
0: yeah, it has to be transparent. I've yeah. I've gotten those letters myself, and I call and I go, "What what exactly was taken? You know, yeah. how was it done? You know, where where do you think it, it is now?" So yeah, it is very frustrating for people, especially those who've who've been victimized by identity theft. They want to be able to protect themselves for the future.
2: Well, so, and the one other piece of the bill that I should mention—it seems like a small piece, but it it, it it gets some folks a little nervous, is we, you know, we also want, whenever that information is available, whenever those notices are provided, we want to have a copy sent to someplace central in the state. Now, we've we've settled for the moment on the Attorney General's office. I, I don't think it's really that important which office it might be. But it's important, I think, both for law enforcement purposes, but also for those of us in the state legislature to have a central repository so that we know how big is the problem, how widespread is it? Are there Patterns? Are there particular folks who are being targeted? Are there particular kinds of information that's being uh, accessed? And uh, that will not only help us do a better job legislating in the field and hopefully protecting people's privacy, but it will also help law enforcement, frankly, if they could have a, a clearer sense of what's going on rather than sort of relying anecdotally on what they hear or on individual cases in individual jurisdictions. So that's another piece of the bill that. While it's a relatively small piece, I think it, it bodes well for both better law enforcement and and better policymaking in the future, Mari.
0: And, you know, a lot of other states have a central repository for that kind of reporting, so it makes sense. But what kind of opposition are you getting? Are the companies afraid to have that reported? That well, they might- are
2: because, you know, right now it's it's awkward enough in their view that they have to be individually identified when there's an individual breach and there's notice of that but there there's a concern that if all of this were accumulated in a central repository, people might suddenly have some uh, notion of just how great uh, the scope of the problem really is, and that that could lead to even greater efforts at regulation. Uh, you know my view is um, you know to say that uh, what we don't know won't hurt us is is really the the wrong approach, whether that's for an individual consumer or for the state as a whole.
0: right. So what impact do you think that the legislation has had in the past several years?
2: Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, the goal was to give individual consumers the information that they needed uh, to protect themselves. And, you know, prior to California taking action in this this particular issue – if our information was compromised, the chances of us knowing about it, being able to do something to protect ourselves were pretty slim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I suggested earlier, I, I really do think ignorance is not bliss. If you don't know that you're at risk, you are hardly in a position to take steps to protect yourself. So I think we've had millions and millions of Californians and, you know, folks around the country now who have been able to take steps to protect themselves. And, again. You know, for somebody, it might be they're going to close down their accounts. Somebody else might say, you know what, I just, I'll just i watch my accounts a little bit more carefully than I otherwise might have. But people have been able to protect themselves in a way that simply wasn't possible when they didn't know that they had been put at risk. I think um, we've, we've been more successful than I had, had initially hoped uh, in terms of providing a meaningful incentive for people to beef up their security. and. Whenever there's one of these security breaches, people say, gee, does that mean the law is not working? And I said, no, 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 we will never know how many breaches have been avoided by people who beefed up their security in order to avoid having to do a notice like this. I know when I talk to uh, security professionals, they tell me that they couldn't get heard in their organizations before this law went into effect. People viewed security expenditures as sort of an extra or an add-on. Now it is viewed as a basic and elemental part of uh, doing business, and that's a, a good thing. And then, of course, the, the the thing that I don't think we ever anticipated was that 40 other states would uh, follow suit. Um, uh, you know, we were hopeful that the federal government would take a look at what we were doing in California, and and they certainly have. But frankly, the feds have been slow to respond, and sometimes when they have talked about responding, they've talked about responding in a way that is weaker than California law and preempting or precluding. Uh, the application of a good, strong statute like the one we've got in California. So, um, you know, for the time being, if the feds aren't prepared to step up with real protection, I think we're we're better off relying on our own California state law. And with 40 other states out there, uh, you know, we've got a good good network of protection in place. And frankly, Mari, you know, given the fact that most databases are are not California specific or limited just to California. As a practical matter, even before these other states adopted their statutes, if somebody's database was compromised with California residents in it, it was really almost impossible for them to say, well, we're going to notify everybody in California, but not tell the rest of the folks in the database. So, Right.
0: The attorney generals in all the other states were up in arms when ChoicePoint tried to do that back in 2005. So you're right. I mean, just the fact that you introduced this legislation, it had a major impact on everyone in our country. Everyone.
2: No, I think so. That's I think we've had, as I say, good. We, number one, we're giving folks the tools they need to protect themselves. Number two, we're giving people an incentive for stronger security. And number three, we're creating a de facto national protection. Uh, even though it's a, it's a sim- single state's law here in California.
0: Yeah, really. And I have noticed myself from from many companies, they are really focusing. You know, there's lots and lots of seminars and programs on data protection. And the great thing that you did in that bill, which I think if people who are driving by are not aware of this, you had the carrot and the stick. In other words, you said if you have had a security breach of sensitive information like a social security number you have a list of what it is and it has not been encrypted okay so it was acquired by an unauthorized person and it was not encrypted you have a duty to notify so obviously the carrot was hey encrypt do something to make it you know unreadable (laughs) and that was really great because that's what everybody said okay this is our way out if we are able to encrypt we're able to at least get out of this
2: No, I think you're absolutely right, Murray. I I think what what made this work, and one of the reasons that we were able to win passage at the time, was that it was a a very light touch. It was almost elegant in its simplicity because it didn't tell people, here's what you have to do to protect somebody's privacy. It said, all right, do it however you want, but if whatever you do is inadequate to the need, then you're going to have to provide notice and that's going to have some cost and that's going to have some reputation harm for your organization. So, you know, we're not going to tell you what you have to do in the way of security, but if you don't get it right, there will be a price. And that gave people some incentive and then as you point out, the further incentive was all right, you know, there's there's a way to avoid that additional cost and obligation and that's to make sure that if the information is compromised, you've provided that additional layer of protection. So, I I think we we struck on a a fairly light touch that ended up actually uh, being pretty effective.
0: Oh, it was very effective. So I I have a question, though, and and I first want to say that, you know, since we have now included health information and uh, health insurance information as what would be considered sensitive information, that has also been great, too, because we're seeing so many hospitals and uh, medical uh, facilities that have had security breaches. So that was great, too. The, the one concern that I think some people have talked about it and maybe you can share with me was that if the in dirty insider is the one who had the unauthorized access and, and that dirty insider or that unscrupulous employee has the key to unencrypt, is is that really a loophole or what?
2: I think it is, and I think that's a fair... Uh, I think it's a fair question and a legitimate concern. I dealt with a similar issue when I was dealing with uh, RFID technology, radio frequency identification devices, because, you know, it's not just enough to prohibit uh, the uh, the bad behavior. You also have to say if someone sort of gives away or has in their possession uh, the secret decoder ring, if you will, for lack of a more technical term, then uh, they're in a, in a unique position or in a particularly... Um, uh, effective position to compromise those protections that are otherwise in place. So I think um, I think it's a perfectly legitimate issue. The challenge, of course, is um, you know anytime we try and legislate in this area, we get a significant amount of pushback from folks because the tighter we try and make the law, uh, the more they're worried about whether or not uh, they'll be subject to uh, some sort of penalty for failure to comply. So it's it's something that I think is worth looking at in the future, Mari. But I uh, I'm probably not going to take a look at it this year, given the difficulty we've had just in getting a simple uh, security breach uh, notice clarification measure uh, over the past couple of years.
0: And I noticed when I when I looked at all of your legisl- all the legislation that you've introduced through the years, I I've noticed how you have to take one step and then reintroduce and then reintroduce another year and reintroduce another yeah. year and it's just like you have to get your foot in the door it must be very frustrating well, I mean, It mean drive me crazy it is
2: <laughs> it is uh, it is more incremental than i would like many times and that's why i mentioned term limits before and it's yeah. uh, you know whether you're for term limits or against term limits really neither here nor there it's just it's important for folks to understand that the the nature of the process is such that it's hard sometimes to take big leaps. People are cautious. They want to see, well, let's go a little way down that path, see how it works out. And so time, you know, time is our enemy on these things. And uh, in some cases, when you've got opponents, they'll simply wait you out. Uh, Folks in the assembly are there no longer than six years. So, you know, at any given time, they may have two or four years left. And somebody figures, well, if I can win a round or two, then they'll be gone. And hopefully the next guy or gal won't be concerned about the same set of issues. So it's It is incremental, and, and, you know, it could be as simple as what governor you've got. You know, can you get a particular governor, uh, whether it's Gray Davis or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever our next governor may be, you know, if he or she is not sympathetic to the issue you're pushing, you can be out of luck for eight years, and um, that just means you're stymied until you've got somebody who is willing to sign those bills uh, if you run into a roadblock along the way.
0: Right. That's why it seems to me so important to help the public know about this. They can't read those bills. They don't have time to read those bills. They can't even understand those bills. So, you know, you really have to do a lot of the things that you do, which is, you know, speak to the public, you know, explain these things to the media. It's so important because I don't think people just I don't think they get it and I don't think they know they're frustrated, but they don't know what to do about it. And uh, so it, we, we so appreciate you. But getting back to the um, the issue of the security breach legislation and maybe taking one little step at a time, uh, another concern that that people have is um, the the non-computerized records. You know, I, I sit as an, an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection, and Joe McNabb is a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. And we have kind of taken the... Position that if the information was once computerized, even if it's printed off, then you still have a duty to notify if it's in paper. Um, if there has been a security breach by an unauthorized person, and uh, that's what we have kind of advised. I've advised clients who call me and saying, "Gee, you know, we've had a security breach of a bunch of bank records." or some documents, but they're but they're in paper now. And I said, well, if they were once in the computer or they're somewhere also electronically, you really have a duty to notify. But then we have the issue of when something is not ever computerized. And I've gotten calls from doctor's offices and they said, you know, we have intake sheets that have the social security number, the birth date, right. uh, credit card numbers, everything very sensitive about the person and it was hand input and it wasn't computerized. Do we have a duty to notify? And I always tell them, well, the letter of the law doesn't really address that. But morally and ethically, and I think legally you should, because if this ever gets out and it's shown that you didn't notify the people, I think you have some exposure. What are your thoughts about the paper? The, the, when it's printed off or when it's handwritten
2: well you know interestingly the the folks who opposed the breach legislation back in 2002 made made a similar argument but from a slightly different perspective their argument was why are you picking on us if there's a breach shouldn't everybody be uh, obliged to provide this kind of notice and their their tactic in making that argument, was not not one of expanding the breadth of the law their tactic was why don't you go uh, create some additional opposition to your bill so that <laughs> so that we'll have more allies to try and defeat it right. and and I said thank you very much I'm not interested in doing that uh but it was a sort of a funny place uh to be in the terms of the argument or the debate about the bill and the response I gave then where I was and this is not to say the paper isn't a problem because it is and I'll come back to that but, you know, the point I, was, I made then is that, that the sheer volume of information online and the speed with which it can be accessed and moved anywhere in the world uh, makes it a qualitatively different kind of problem. Yes. And that's that's really, uh, you know, to their credit, the feds, I think, have, have reached that conclusion uh, at the regulatory level as well. And I, I frankly thought it was a little disingenuous to say what about paper you know, that's a problem, too. You know, you you can't really, you know, roll up to the back of the landing dock and run off with three or four million paper records in a split second and send them anywhere in the world. It's it's just a different uh, kind of a thing altogether. Now, that being said, is paper a problem? Absolutely. And, you know, I sometimes hear from folks, well, you know, don't we have more of a problem with people who are dumpster diving at the back of the uh, of the post office or in people's individual uh, trash cans. And legitimate problem, real problem, uh, all of us need to be mindful of that as we toss our own paper records uh, but But out. there but- is
0: law, but we have law, that that you must completely um, destroy any documents that you're dis- discarding that have that sensitive yeah. information. We have it at the state level, and we actually have it in the Fair Credit Reporting mm-hmm. Act. Even if you are not subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that provision really is for everyone but i
2: think even you know on any given incident i just think that that the as i say the speed and the magnitude uh of the of the problem uh, when we're talking online it just makes it a qualitatively, qualitatively different and and greater threat uh and one that that really spies. so you know would i like to tackle paper at some point probably uh do i think that's likely given the political climate we're working in Regrettably, probably not.
0: Yeah, maybe not this year. <laughs> but but it is an issue. Like I said, it, it is an issue, no, and, and I still, as an attorney, will advise people to to notify anyway because the spirit of the law is is that you're trying to protect people from having their sensitive information getting into the hands of of people who could steal their identity or use it for some other privacy purpose.
2: Well, and it, you know if if people won't do it for what we might think of as the right reasons. Um, you know, if they're already perhaps subject to uh, some kind of liability legally for uh, letting loose of those paper documents, one way they can mitigate their liability is to take some good faith steps to to help somebody protect themselves. And so, a failure to do that uh, can only expand their liability later on. And I think um, they're kidding themselves if they think that keeping it a secret is going to be the way to protect themselves.
0: Exactly. Now let's switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, a subject that's very close to your heart, which is the radio frequency identifiers. And, and let's talk about for our audience to understand what these devices are first. Sure.
2: Well, you know, it's it's funny. RFID is a technology I wasn't particularly mindful of until uh, I was confronted with a case here in Northern California. Radio frequency identifying technology has been around for, oh gosh, decades, so all the way back to World War II, in it's sort of most uh, simple and elemental forms. And Uh, Most of us uh, are used to it in some sort of an ID card that we might use to gain, an access card that we might use to get into our parking garage or apartment or condominium complex. And we wave our little card, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the magic happens, and the gate goes up or the door is wide open. And, um, you know, most folks I talk to say, gee, I never really thought about how it worked. And the answer is that there's a – in that RFID technology – uh, there's a, a, you know, a, a reader that you present yourself to, and the reader sends out a little radio signal and says, hey, who are you, and what makes you think you got a right to get in here? And there's an antenna in your card that picks that up, and then it sends back a little message saying, hey, I'm State Senator Joe Simitian, and I've got a right to come into the Capitol at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the reader says, okay, thank you very much for sharing that information, and uh, in you go. Uh, what people are not mindful of is that, uh, you know, anyone with the right technology can access that same radio wave. And in effect, your personal information is being broadcast to anyone who asks for it at any time. And, you know, unlike a lot of the other ways we're victimized, uh, you know, worry if I've got a pickpocket, I, you know, I realize suddenly, hey, you know, my wallet's gone and I think maybe I better do something about it. But, if somebody reads or, in the jargon, skims this information with an RFID reader, um, then I don't even know my information has been compromised. I, you know, so it's a it's a tough place to protect yourself uh, if you don't know that uh, that in fact someone has skimmed your information and can use it. And it's surprisingly easy to do, I might add.
0: I remember one time when you were on our show, you talked about um, how you were able to educate the your fellow uh, Legislators, yeah, was, why don't you tell that I, story? I, well, I was
2: just—I was so frustrated because I was—I was talking about this issue, and I could—I could see that I was getting blank stares from my colleagues. And you know, I'm thinking, all right, I, whatever it is I'm saying, I'm not—I'm not—I'm not getting through here. What can I do to make the case? And finally, I asked somebody in my office, you know, do we know somebody who can do the things I'm describing? And they said, oh, sure. And I said, well, let's get them in here then. And so, you know, I walked into my office one day, and there was this. So And I sort of joked, he looked like he was from central casting for Hacker Dude. He was, he was sort of a tall, skinny young guy in his 20s with the black jeans and the black t-shirt and the black jacket and long sort of, you know, scraggly blonde hair and what I'm old enough to refer to as granny glasses for your listeners who remember what I'm talking about. And, and I introduced myself and he introduced himself. And I said, so, you know, what can you do? And he said, well, have you got a state assembly and senate card? And I went and got an assembly colleague to give me their card. And I handed him the cards, and he handed them right back. And I said, well, I thought you needed the cards. And he said, oh, I'm done. And I said, well, what do, what do you mean you're done? He, he says, well, I'm done. I said, well, what have you done? He said, well, I've just read your cards. And I said, well, what do you mean you've read them? And he said, I mean all the information that was on your card has now been read by me, and I have that information. And I thought, well, okay, what else? And he sort of smiled and said, well, and I, I've also cloned it. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I've now duplicated it in effect, and I can – do anything with my card here that you could do before. And I said, meaning you could walk into the state capitol at 2 o'clock tonight through a secure members-only entrance? And he said, absolutely. And then he sort of smiled again and said, and better still, it would think I was State Senator Semidian when I came in, because I've copied your card.
0: Identity theft.
2: And Exactly so. And so at that point, I said, uh, I need you to wait for a moment while I go get the sergeant-at-arms and the highway patrol. And he, <laughs> he he said, that'll be fine. And sure enough, we went downstairs and the capital and uh... went to a secure members only entrance and uh... he just walks right in you know waving his cloned version of my card all of which had been done in a split second and mm-hmm. you know my my colleagues then started to realize that if this was the card we were using to get into what is supposed to be one of the most secure uh... buildings in the state of california that perhaps uh... there were some uh, flaws in this kind of use for the technology and Again, I don't have any fault with the technology. I mean, I think the technology is great. It's got a million and one good uses for tracking pallets of soup at the grocery store or, you know, whatever it is you want to use it for. But to use this as a keeper of information and a conveyor of information in what is supposed to be a government identity document raises some pretty interesting privacy concerns in terms of the ability of others to access that information, the ability to clone the card, Uh, the ability for people, frankly, to track your movements and to profile your daily routine. All of those are things that I think people had not given as much thought to as they should before we started to see the proliferation of this technology in identity documents generally, but particularly in government identity documents, Mari, which has been the focus of my work. You know, it's one thing if you or I as a consumer make an informed choice about buying a sweater someplace that may have been tagged and tracked as a matter of inventory. But when government says we're going to put the compulsory power of the state behind the requirement that you use this as a driver's license, as a student ID, as a healthcare access card, then it seems to me we're into some very different and, and much more serious territory in terms of privacy and security concerns
0: and you were very successful with SB31 which which was the RFID skimming device prohibition so that
2: well, well we i i had i you know thank you i had hoped for a broader sort of more comprehensive approach i i got a bill to the governor's desk back in 2006 that would have put in place some broader privacy protections for uh, government identity documents using RFID technology uh you know there's there's sort of are two basic uh, things you can do one is Talk about what kinds of information are going to be stored on such a card. And the second is what kinds of technical protections are we going to provide that will um, prevent or at least uh, inhibit anyone from accessing that information. But right now, as it stands, there's no limit on what anybody can put on such a card any and all personal information. And there's no requirement for even the most basic of privacy protections. Unfortunately, the governor uh, uh, vetoed that bill back in 2006, and I was left with a sort of a decision about how to proceed. And I came to the conclusion that I need to come back with a handful of bills dealing with different uses. So school identity cards uh, for uh, California public school kids. Uh, and driver's l- let's,
0: let's go back to that one. Let's, let's take each one of those because sure. – you you actually worked very hard on SB twenty nine, and I remember when there was a big brouhaha in Northern California where schools were putting uh, RFID's into the student IDs, and there were a lot of parents who were very upset by this, right?
2: There there were, and I this one surprised me. I was able to get the governor to sign a couple of these bills as they made their way through uh, the process. He he did sign a bill that simply prohibited skimming, the uh, unlawful reading of someone else's personal information by using an RFID reader without their knowledge or consent. So that's now against the law as a result of the legislation. And, and believe it or not, it wasn't before. If, if I stole the card out of your pocket, that would have been against the law. But if I stole the information by using radio waves, that wasn't against the law. That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. <laughs> right. The governor bought that. So that was a good thing. And we also got him to uh, approve a bill that would prohibit the forced implanting of an RFID chip. Believe it or not, we've had some employers who've talked about uh, requiring employees to put a chip under the skin so that they can sort of track their movements and know where they are in the plant, where they are in a building, make sure they're not in parts of the building that they shouldn't be in, again, because the reader reads the radio wave so it can follow your movements. And that one, I think, was Sort of so nineteen eighty four uh <laughs> in its implications that the governor again uh, signed it, but the one that he surprised me on, and I was disappointed was the the bill that you you mentioned, which was uh s b twenty nine and uh you know that was a bill that said if if a school district wants to use this technology, then at a minimum uh they've got to give parents notice, and that the parents have to then sign off on that that it's going to be the parents' choice whether or not they're going to compromise their kids' privacy in that way. And, you know, individual parents might reach different conclusions, but it it just seemed to me that, you know, we've got a system of compulsory education for 6 million through K-12 school kids. Uh, they have to go to school. And to say, well, we're going to require, as one local school district did in Northern California, that kids wear RFID badges that broadcast their personal information for attendance and tracking purposes, that's a... A violation of the fundamental right to privacy that's guaranteed in the California Constitution without anybody's consent and with no limits, again, on what information is on that card and with no guarantee that even the most basic privacy protection measures will be taken in terms of encrypting that information or requiring what's known as mutual authentication to make sure that the reader is an authorized reader and that the card is a legitimate card and not a clone like the one I described earlier – Ultimately, the governor said, nope, can't go there, uh, and vetoed uh, a bill that simply would have given parents the ability to make that choice for their kids and their families, rather than simply leaving that to the local school districts. And
0: yeah, I thought I was that was shocked. a bad call. I was shocked with that one, because if anyone, I, I, I really didn't expect that one, because that one was, you know, he's a, he's a parent with kids, and he can understand that as well. He's a, you know, a, a a celebrity that worries about his privacy and his children's privacy it totally didn't make any sense what was that all about
2: well he he, he you know he gave some rationale in his veto message which uh, as an author you appreciate because uh, you know you, you asked the same qu- you know I you asked the same question I asked when I heard there was a veto I thought hmm, no I wonder what that's about and you know his argument was look I I support the kind of thing you're trying to do here with 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 parental consent notification but I want to, number one, sort of leave that up to local school districts, and, number two, he argued that it ought to be done in a way that's technology neutral, whether it was an RFID-enabled card or some other type of ID. I, I think my rebuttal to that, if I was chatting with the governor, would be, well, Governor, I- I'm I'm a former school board member. I-, I believe in local control as well, but what we don't do is give folks local c- control to violate constitutional rights, and the yes. right to privacy is a, is a constitutional right it's implicit in the US constitution as you know but it's explicit in the California constitution it was put there by the voters so we don't say local school districts get to do their own thing when it comes to uh, issues of constitutional rights and and i understand the argument for being technology neutral but you know we're we we're talking about a particular kind of problem that is a uniquely uh, attributable to the use of radio waves to send information back and forth that's I'm trying to solve the problem I'm trying to solve. You know, usually the governor's office wants you to be narrow and specific and not be overly broad. So I-, I didn't find either of those arguments compelling, but you know, he's the governor and uh absent his signature, the bill doesn't become law. So I think I've probably made as much progress on this RFID issue as I can with this governor, uh, and I'll probably have to wait until There's a new governor downstairs before we uh, try again on RFID issues, Mari.
0: Yeah, I I think the only thing that would change it if, God forbid, some kid was followed, you know, if some school district did have the kids uh, have RFID readers, in something that they were wearing or their backpacks and somebody followed them and killed them or stalked them. I think then all of a sudden it might have a totally different perspective. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's the kind of thing sometimes that needs to happen for people to see what the dangers are.
2: Well, I, you know, I actually got some bipartisan support on this bill as I worked it through the legislature, because, you know, one of the things that uh, people realized is, uh, you know, hey, kids are kids. And, and, you know, what's going to keep you know, Johnny from using uh, Sally's uh, card and Sally from using Johnny's card when they walk into different classes, right? I mean, that's just the the, the nature of right. of kids. And and one of my colleagues then asked the folks on the other side of this debate, well, how do you deal with that? And the answer was, well, you do a visual verification, and everybody started to chuckle and said, what do you mean you take attendance for a second time? Why, why would we want to use a system that still requires us right. after we've used this to sort of track people's movements in and about the school that still requires us to look at every kid and, you know, check them off in the old-fashioned way. I thought the whole point to And most was to teachers that.
0: wouldn't. And, and you know from being on a school board, and, and I was on a school board, and I was a teacher, and I know that, hey, if you've got that taken care of, you move on to do the other things that you have to do. Exactly so. <laughs> We're speaking with my privacy hero with the California Senate Privacy Hero Senator Joe Simidian, who was elected to the California Senate in November 2004. Thank goodness he has four more years. And before that, he was in the Assembly. And he is the author of so many great, very profound, very important privacy bills. And we're talking with him right now about RFID, radio frequency identifier legislation. You know, I wanted to bring up an important issue. And that is that you were talking about uh, the, the governor saying that he wanted to be neutral Or technology neutral. And one of the things I've heard you say before when you were talking to me, and I think is so important, that you're not trying to stop technology. You're not opposed to technology, and neither am I. The issue is how do we build privacy into the architecture of the technology before we go crazy with it?
2: Absolutely right. I mean the technology is only as good as the human judgment that backs it up. I I'm not sure I ever shared with you my my mother was a computer programmer and programmer analyst back in the late 50s and early 60s when you know nobody knew what a computer programmer was let alone, and there there certainly weren't a lot of women in the field at the time and uh, wow. but I remember growing up with her saying people always want to blame the computer the the person they ought, the thing they ought to blame is the person who, who made the mistake with the computer. The com- you know, the computer's not the problem. We're the problem. And the same's true of the technology. I, the technology's great. It, the question is, do we have the wisdom and the will to use it wisely? And, uh, you know, what I've said is, if you've got a technology that, uh, by definition, broadcasts information to anyone who's got a receiver, um, then exercise some judgment about what you do or don't Broadcast and exercise some judgment about basic privacy protections that will keep that information from being broadcast to somebody who shouldn't have access to it, and that's really uh, that's really the nature of the debate. I, as I said, I I'm a Silicon Valley uh, state senator. I represent you know much of the area that has developed and uh, refined this technology over the years. I think the technology is great. I just want to make sure we use it well, and particularly, Mari, I go back to this point when it is the state compelling its use. You know, if you and I want to make an informed choice as consumers, that's one thing. But uh, when the state says, here's what you have to do, then I think we've certainly got these kind of obligations.
0: Right. I even worry about making a choice when we don't understand the ramifications, you know, and that's that's another problem. Maybe private industry will use this and try and tout it as being, you know, the cure all for everything. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that most people don't understand. It's not really transparent what can happen. So that's that's another issue. I mean, I don't think that we should rule other people's lives, but I think people get back to the issue of what you just said, informed Choices. That's
2: right. No, I, I've got fr- friends and constituents who use Fast Track to pay their bridge tolls, and they, I do, they yeah. find it, they find <laughs> it very convenient. And I say, now, when you see those signs that say, "Hey, it's only 28 minutes to the San Francisco Airport," do you know how they know that? And they say, "Well, <laughs> no." How do they know that? And I said, "Well, because after you've gone through the bridge, they're they're still using that tag to track your movements around the Bay Area, and if you get from point A to point B." In, you know, in 16 minutes, then they know, okay, you're going just as fast. And they know it's your car and they know how long it takes to get to the San Francisco airport or across the bridge or to downtown San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, that's the
0: scary part. <laughs>
2: and, and, you know, that information then is there when somebody's in a lawsuit, and subpoenas that information. And, you know, it's come up yep. in some divorce cases where, uh, you know, one of the parties said they were at one place when turns out they were someplace else altogether, Mari. And,
1: right, right. Uh,
2: so I, I did. And, People look at me like, really? And I say, sure. And (laughs) they don't realize that buried in the fine print somewhere when they got their fast track, there was an indication that the information might be used for purposes other than simply getting across the bridge and paying a toll.
0: Exactly. Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. People just don't understand what can happen. So, so so, what do you think? Do you, Are you planning to introduce any more legislation to c- secure the RFIDs?
2: As I said earlier, I think uh, get, making further progress on the RFID issue with this governor is going to be tough. And uh, I don't say that critically. I just say it matter-of-factly. You know, he's the governor... Uh, I've got, and um, without his signature, <laughs> I'm not going to be moving anything anywhere anytime soon. So, uh, and you know, look, I, I appreciate the fact that he he saw the wisdom of the two bills that I put in front of him most recently, and uh, we've made some progress on the issue. And I think certainly we've heightened the issue. And and I'm I'm now in a, a new role, chairing a budget subcommittee dealing with some of the transportation and resources issues, and confronting this issue in a slightly different uh, venue, which is. DMV wants to move forward with facial recognition software, Mari. Right. That uh, uh, that raises a whole new host of privacy questions. So I'll be able to raise those issues, uh, those privacy issues, in the context of facial recognition software, and um, we'll be having the same arguments again about to what extent is convenience uh, a justification for uh, privacy. Uh, concerns simply being brushed aside.
0: Well, the good news is is that the DMV does have a privacy task force, and they've asked me to be involved in that. So I asked lots of questions on a conference call, and hopefully I'll hear back from them with regard to those questions and what the answers will be. And there were quite a few good questions, I think, in there. Good. So at least they are really reaching out to to see what the privacy implications are before they move, back, you know, move on with real ID and all those yeah. other things that they, they have to do. Um, going back to when you were in the assembly, you introduced the Online Privacy and Disclosure Act of 2003. I know you worked very hard to get that signed into law. And that's all about privacy policies. You want to tell my audience a little bit about that?
2: Well, that was actually the, the when I was working on the security breach notification bill, that was the, the this online privacy policy issue was what had started my uh, my legislative effort. And, it, you know it was it i asked the I asked the legislative council the lawyers for the state legislature you know if if somebody makes a purchase online and relies on the privacy policy and then it turns out that the folks that they bought something from don't honor the privacy policy, is that a violation of the law? Can we enforce contract law on that level for example and you know about three months later, I got back a fifteen page single space memo that said maybe it depends. <laughs> and i didn't I didn't think that was a particularly reassuring response <laughs> uh-huh. and I said well let's let's do a piece of legislation that's got two real simple pieces. The first is it says if you're going to do business online, that you have to post an online privacy policy. It can be as you know limiting or as expansive as you want it to be. It can say we're going to give everything to anybody who asks, or it can say, no, we're going to exercise real restraint and constraint, and here's what we're going to do, but whatever it is, just put it out there and make sure it's easily accessible. And then the second thing is, and this part of the law really didn't uh, wasn't widely understood, even though it was what I was primarily concerned about. Is it says, and then you have to follow the terms of your own privacy policy. Duh. And if you, well, because yeah. yep. you know, it's not just enough to say, here's our privacy policy. It's, and you know, and we're going to follow it once we've told you these are the rules. We're now obliged. It now as a matter of state law. And I had tried this in 2002. Uh, then Governor Davis vetoed it the first time around. But to his credit, when he sent me the veto message, he said, I think you're on to a good idea here, but I think it needs a little more work. Could you try again? And so I did try again, and in 2003 we tweaked it a little bit and uh, got a version to the governor that he was willing to sign, and it has been law ever since. And so since I think it was actually uh, July 1st of 2004 when it took effect, uh, people now are obliged to post a privacy policy, do so conspicuously, and they are then obliged to follow the terms of the policy that they post. And what you know, what's interesting about this is it 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 has been largely self-enforcing, which was the goal. Uh, again, trying to use a light touch. Just this past year, there was a, a bit of a minor flap, Mari, with a half dozen uh, privacy groups who were making the argument with Google that Google hadn't fully complied with the provisions of the law. Now, Google saw it differently. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get pulled into that debate, but ultimately, uh, Google decided that rather than risk litigation, they would put the word privacy on the front of their homepage, and as you know, they're very spare. That homepage has 28 words on it. That's right. their limit, and so they moved one word off and put the word privacy there, and now as a result, you know when you go to Google, privacy pops right up there, and you can access that privacy policy from the very first moment you arrive on the page. Uh, And as I said, that was the way the law was designed to work. I had a a provision in it that said you couldn't sue anyone until you'd given them 30 days notice and an opportunity to correct. So people gave that notice. And within that period of time, uh, Google, without ever acknowledging that it may or may not have been in violation of the state law, said, all right, we'll we'll make that change and we'll, you know, obviate the need to have that argument. And um, as a result, Uh, it's a little easier to access uh, the privacy policy today than it was before. And in my view, the most important thing is anybody out there has to comply with the terms of their own privacy policy, uh, which to me was the the starting point in that whole discussion.
0: Yes, I think it has been very effective. I think people need to read those privacy policies. And, in fact, I was an expert witness just this last year, just on this issue, the fact that the privacy policy was not being followed by a bank. They totally were in, you know, incongruent with the policy, and it settled because of that.
2: Well, and the part that was interesting is I, you know, oftentimes here in the legislature, we're not aware of fully of whether or not the law has any impact. And what I learned later from talking to people about this is, oh yes, as of the, you know, the day before the effective date of the law, there were privacy policies that were being amended and posted all around the globe to comply with California state law because the law applied to anyone who did business with someone in California. And, uh, you know, that was not something that would have been readily visible to me. Uh, You know, the day the law took effect, the sun came up, it went down that night, and I went on with my business. (laughs) But Uh uh, for folks who were watching carefully, privacy policies around the globe for commercial uh, transactions online were changed as a result of our efforts here in California. And as I say, more to the point from my standpoint, that next day... You either had to comply, or you were in violation of state law.
0: And it's lucky we're, you're from such a big state, <laughs> because we have so many people that everybody has to pay attention when you get a law passed, and it has repercussions all over the place.
2: It does, and you're and you're absolutely right about that. If if uh, if I were working in a smaller state, uh, I think the impact of the work would would clearly be. Uh, uh, reduced. And, but that also means there's an obligation, which is, I think we've got an obligation to get it right. You know, if we do it wrong here in California, then uh, that has uh, potential consequences uh, not only around the, the, the state, but around the country and around the globe. So it, it's important that we do the work well and carefully and get it right because we know others are going to look to California.
0: You have done so much for so many consumers, and I, I want to thank you again for your uh, bill back in 2007, I think it was SB 1018 dealing with vulnerable elderly and financial yeah. abuse. I, you know, I deal with a lot of people who call me who are victims of identity theft and other kinds of financial abuse. And it is so tragic when I hear from the elderly, they are so vulnerable. Let's talk about that great bill that you got passed, and, and it really does help prevent elder financial abuse?
2: Well, I I was delighted because this was an issue that, uh, frankly, the legislature had been stuck on for probably 10 years. And to me, it seemed uh, an obvious uh, way to help uh, vulnerable seniors. It's a mandated reporting bill, and it simply says that folks who work at banks and financial institutions who are on the front lines of elder financial abuse, who are in a position to see uh, these things as they're happening, um, are, are simply going to be mandated reporters, meaning they are required to pick up the phone and call and say, you know what, I think there might be a problem here. They can call the folks at Adult Protective Services. Uh, this had been uh, an effort that really had been stymied for, uh, as I say, a decade, and finally we were able to get to yes on this. Uh, a lot of credit, by the way, to my colleague uh, who was in the State Assembly then now, has joined me in the State Senate, uh, Lois Wolk, Senator Lois Wolk, from the Davis area here in Northern California. But the two of us worked hard on this together and were able to bring banks and credit unions in. And again, the, you know, there was a fear there that somehow this would be an undue burden or there would be liability issues. What we've seen since is that that has not been the case. We've, we've actually got uh, good anecdotal evidence that the law is working just as we had hoped. And, you know, it was the kind of thing that seemed so obvious to me, which is that when someone's standing right there and sees something that uh, should cause uh, at least enough concern for further investigation, pick up the phone, make the call, let somebody who's a professional step in at that point, but don't just look the other way. You know, this sort of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil was, was just not serving anybody well, and now California is a place where there's somebody with an obligation to to sort of look out for the folks who they're doing business with.
0: Well, Senator Joe and that's why I think you are terrific. You are my hero here. Too bad you're not from Orange County, but I still, I can support you even though I'm down here. And I want to thank you. It's time, believe it or not, I wanted to talk about so many of your other bills. We'll have to have you back. I want you to know that we appreciate you, and we hope you'll come back on our show again.
2: It would be my pleasure, and thank you for the work you do, Maria. As you hinted earlier, public awareness is frankly the best protector we can possibly have on many of these privacy security and identity theft issues and you know all the good laws in the world don't really help if people aren't aware of the concerns that are the basis for those laws and the work you do to spread the word is really, I think, uh, top of the list in terms of importance. So thank you.
0: And we'll see you soon. I'll
2: be back. Okay. Thank you.
0: Yes. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can hear our archived interviews and see our upcoming guests and write us emails about what you want to know about. Thank you and good night.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.